following podcast is recorded and produced by the Podcast Precinct in affiliation with the network at BICBP-radio.com. The Podcast Precinct. Consistency. Creativity. Culture. It's a Sicilian message, you hear? It means Luca Braze sleeps with the fishes. Whoever appeals to the law against his fellow man is either a fool or a coward. Whoever cannot take care of himself without police is both. And that is the code of Amerta. Tonight, we're talking about a legendary buffalo mobster, Stefano Magadino. The Undertaker. The Undertaker. The original Undertaker. Hometown boy here. Huh. Um, guys excited for this one or yeah yeah man i mean are we going to introduce ourselves we didn't even do that we worked on this whole thing and then didn't even do it. <laughs> oh right off jump yeah man why not yeah well you guys you guys said right, go for it we're not we're not the men you usually know week after week tonight we've taken on some new personas so let me reintroduce myself they call me caden four fingers emilio they call me johnny tight lips chop Hey, it's a bullet tooth Bonacci. They also call me Two Tux Tommy. Fast Hands Freddy. Oh man. Oh man. Got some real characters in here tonight. From around the way. Yeah. Hey, uh <laughs> hey tight lips, well, how they get you how you get that name? Well, I ain't saying nothing over here. Mm. The Omerta man. Question. <laughs> Pleading the fifth. Okay. I'm bulking the fifth over here. So yeah, we're going to dive into a little bit of... Uh, I can't hear my uh, headphones. Anything about that? Hold we're going to dive into a little bit of uh, why they oh, take... Wait. Why they take care of the technical difficulties. <laughs> Sorry. We're going to jump into know. a little bit of uh, uh, Western New York uh, mafia history here with Stefano Magadino. Yo. The Undertaker. Troop, can you hear yourself? Yeah, I'm good. I can't with hear The Undertaker. Shit. All right, it's fine. Don't worry about it. You guys, you guys just slapped a hole. Yeah, slap it. One eight hundred. Shut up. One hundred. Slap a hole right here, huh? All slap right. it like Stefano slaps his capos. <laughs> right. So Stefano Magadino, we're talking about one of the um, longest reigning mafiosos in history. He had a fifty-plus year uh, reign. Holy um, fuck! Yeah, the guy was serious, man. He uh, started in uh, Castelma. Castellamare del Golfo, which is uh, in Sicily, and it's like where a lot of all the big names came from. That's where like uh, all the all the guys from the original five families they all come from like this same area. It was like a real warring uh, part of uh, Sicily. Hey, <laughs> uh, Chup, before we continue on yeah. with uh, Mr. Macadino. We should definitely talk about the five families. Not like now, just like later on. Uh, we could. You, you want to run through them real quick? Uh, yeah, let me just... Um, I can go from memory, probably. Right. Uh, the five families, you got Banano. Banano. Uh, which was run by Joe Banano back in the day. Uh, Columbo, the Columbo crime family. Um, Joe Columbo. Uh, there was the Lucchese 
crime family. Um, not sure if I, uh, Tommy Lucchese. Um, who else we got? We got the Genovese crime family. And, um, who am I missing? Gambino. Huh? Well, Off okay. top, dude. Right, well, Let's go. Let's go. I'm not. I'm not fact checking because last time, last time we, last time I tried to fact check. I just looked. You got him right. All right. So let's talk about uh, Stefano's coming up here. While most people associate the American Mafia with a few big city locations, mainly New York and Chicago, uh, with an honorable mention for Miami, there was once a time when upstate New York was a haven for organized crime. From Prohibition up until the 70s, places like Buffalo, New York, were centers for organized crime and criminal activity from bootlegging to distribution of heroin, which makes a lot of sense because we're right on the border. Yep. You know, a lot of shit coming down from Canada. I mean, oh yeah, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, go ahead. But I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, growing up here, one one of the things you hear very early on growing up here is how big... The mafia presence was around here, like oh. back in the day. Yeah, and you hear people talk about it almost like with an endearing. Yeah, like a lot of people you talk to, you know, you start to get the idea that people liked it a lot more back when the mafia was running things. Like even today, Niagara Falls, a uh, little Italy, still stands on Pine Avenue. Um, they ain't taking that away. A huge, a huge Italian presence. The Como was down there. Uh, Di Camello's. All big Italian families. Uh, don't forget about Latinas. Latinas, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's safe to say that if the mafia was still running the city, it would not be anything like it is right now. It'd probably be a lot better, honestly. Yeah, well, it is a wasteland down there, and it's uh, it's pretty sad to see that, you know. Yeah. Before we dive in more of this guy, uh, Macadino, my uh, great grandmother read it. Like my great grandma, uh, Macadino liked my great grandma because all her kids and stuff. Yeah, I was like, then he was like a nice guy. But once again, he, like, a nice guy to the city, but he was bad to the state or something. Right, absolutely. Yeah, a lot of these guys are like that. You know, um, you would never know that they're like ruthless killers because they're, uh, you know, happy-go-lucky guys. And uh, a lot of times back in the day, uh, criminals, there was a code of conduct. So you wouldn't, it wouldn't be in broad daylight. You, you would never know there, you know, they just didn't do shit like that. It would all, things went on behind closed doors and, uh, when some, something needed to be handled, it usually got handled out of sight. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, yeah. So, um, one man who pulled the strings on it all was, of course, Stefano. The Undertaker, Magadino, from the 1920s until shortly before his death in 1974. Magadino's Buffalo crime family pulled the strings on rackets that stretched from Buffalo into the American Midwest and across the border into Canada. If there was a gambling, narcotics, or extortion racket occurring across that territory in the 20th century, chances are Stefano Magadino's organization was profiting from it. Uh, so he, uh, he was born in 1891. He emigrated to the United States a decade later. His family initially settled in Brooklyn. By his late teens, he was already involved in the New York Mafia, which is not surprising. 
Like I said, Castellamare had long been a hotbed for mafia activity in Sicily. Magadino was a close cousin to the Bananos, also from Castellamare, and initially operated with them on the streets in New York City. So, yeah, in his family, he's got some heavyweights right off jump. Yeah, so, I mean, they're... Obviously, nobody was expecting this guy to become, like, some, you know, career fucking guy, basically. I mean, they pretty much knew from get-go he was going to be... Yeah, there was, yeah. like, no other way yeah, for him. Yeah, there was no option for him, basically. It's pretty funny. Uh, the the cousins with Banano things going to come into play a little later, too, in the story. Um, Stefano was initially an advisor and street enforcer for Giuseppe Banano in New you York. You Banana? Banano. Banano. Banana. Uh, helping the Bananos establish and run lucrative rackets. Those early years in, uh, of mafia encroachment on public life in America were often violent, and Magadino was right in the middle of it. His brother was killed as a result of a dispute with a rival faction, and Stefano allegedly killed another man, mobster Carmen Kaizo, in an act of retribution. Magadino then fled to upstate New York to avoid the murder charges. He subsequently spent the rest of his life here and built a Buffalo crime family into an empire. Just take a second to hear that last line. He built the Buffalo crime family into an empire. Not so all- this dude went from being, my bad, this dude went from being cousins to the Bonanno family to building a fucking empire. Yeah. Like, talk about a come One man. Yeah, talk about a come Just, Just the movements of one man and a whole fucking, uh, aren't. Arm of a, of the mafia opens up, and they called them. They called the uh, the Buffalo Mafia the the right arm or something too. The, the, I I have to look it up, but it was something like that, or the black hand, or one of I don't know. Shit, black something arm, like that. black hand, matter. <laughs> I uh, I think for me specifically, I think my biggest thing that I've always been that's always interested me about like mafia life and stuff like that is. Almost in every single family you hear about, the one thing that always comes up naturally is these guys got fucking insane amount of honor, man. They got so much honor amongst them, you know what I mean? Unless you cross them, you know what I mean? They'll pretty much go to the ends of the earth for you, you know what I mean? Which is always, for I sure, was for always sure. sick. That's what, yeah, I always fucking, I always appreciated that. And especially as present in the early years. Um, later into like the seventies and shit, they started like getting into dealing drugs and a lot more backstabbing and greed started happening. And then that ultimately was like, what was the downfall of the mafia? You know, there was no honor anymore. Everyone was ratting each other out, which goes against the core tenants, the Omerta. Um, so yeah, uh, so he's building an, uh, a legal empire. But he also was building a legitimate empire at the time as well. And uh, this is where he got his nickname, uh, The Undertaker. Oh, uh, after moving upstate, Magadino established a funeral business in Niagara Falls, which gave rise to his Undertaker nickname. However, the New York Mafia ties and has an ambition. He soon began uh, laying the grounds for expanding the modest Buffalo crime family into an actual outfit. Um, with the onset of prohibition, which was like, prohibition was the best thing that ever happened to crime. Um, yeah, because then didn't they become like this? 
like the main source of like getting well, that kind of stuff. Basically? Yeah, yeah. Alcohol wasn't going to go away. People uh, were going to get it. So now it just allowed these guys to step in and be that supplier, and and made it m- much more lucrative. You know, especially for guys who lived in Niagara Falls, who were right next to Canada, where there was no prohibition. Yeah. So now, uh, if there was prohibition, it would just hop over to Canada and get your booze. What not? Right, or just bring it, bootleg it over here. Um, uh, Magadino's uh, organization made a fortune bootlegging and became a key supplier of wine and liquor to speakeasies across New York and beyond. The Buffalo soon expanded into other rackets like extortion and gambling and ran legitimate businesses as well using them to both launder money and make profits by landing lucrative contracts with their influence. His influence extended into the old world as well, where he was reputed to be involved in a lucrative narcotic smuggling ring. Uh, The Buffalo crime family avoided the law enforcement spotlight, which remained centered on the big cities throughout most of the 20th century. Uh, Magadino himself remained a shadowy background figure, making use of interlocutors and legitimate business fronts to conceal his involvement in illicit activities. He was well-respected within the mafia underworld and was key and enduring figure within the infamous infamous mafia commission established by the New York mob and maintained close ties to the New York families throughout his tenure as a Don. So the commission was set up by Lucky Luciano, (laughs) <laughs> and what it was was like a board of um, directors, basically. So for Stefano to have a seat on the commission, that's saying a lot. You know what I mean? The guy was a, a heavy hitter. Um, let's talk a little bit more about uh, act- some of the surrounding characters. Uh, can you pull up the... Yes, I can. Uh, real quick. I looked it up while you were talking. They just called it. They called it just. It was just the arm. The arm. Yeah, it. I knew it was the something arm like in that. Buffalo. Yeah, that's what they called it. So what? Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Um, the organization of Buffalo, New York, is uh started off uh, Stefan Macadino as the head man. Uh, then a guy named John C. Mountain. Was part in Canada? Yeah. You read it better. Okay, so the hierarchy here. We had uh, Stefano Magadino at the boss, obviously. Uh, his conciliar, John um, Montana. Um, <laughs> underboss, <laughs> Frederico Rendacio. I read a lot about that guy. He was a big, big, big uh, Buffalo mobster, man. Uh, Salvatore Pieri, alias Samuel Joe, um, former underboss of Buffalo. Lieutenants, John Camilleri, Pascal Natarelli, Roy Carlisi, and Stephen Canarazzo. So uh, he had uh, section leaders, so these are basically captains now. Um, Salvatore Brocato, Josefino, Salvatore Bonito, Daniel Sansonese, 
Paul Briandi, Anthony Perna. They called him Lucky. Well, was he lucky? Uh, Lucky. They called him. Um, Oh, yeah, I missed. They got their little names underneath. Uh, Paul Briandi was known as Bobby Ross. (laughs) Uh, Perna, Lucky, or uh, Anthony Gentile. Um, Salvatore Sam Rizzo. Um, Pascal Palatano. Sam Lagatuta, Salvatore Miano, and Michael Tascarella. And then, of course, there was a couple of his relatives that were uh, amongst the, the ranks here. Um, Antonio Magadino and James LaDuca. The real cool thing that I think, too, that I... Because I'm looking at the same picture you guys were. Uh, the real cool thing that I thought, the thing that I found the coolest about all this is that they all have, like, little FBI numbers next to their names. Yeah, it's pretty sick. Yeah, to, like, show that they all had a file at the FBI at one point, which so, is fucking badass. Yeah, I think most of those arrests actually uh, came from the Appalachian meeting. Oh, that is, that, I got a uh, good effect about that one. Um, not a good effect, but it was a good story. Of course, uh, I like watching gangsta, uh, gangsta movies with my grandfather. Oh, yeah. I was going to be like a pure like shootout. And the, f- the first part of the movie was, was a couple killings. Okay, I'm just watching I'm watching the movie. It's like I get the idea, but they had the biggest meeting in the Appalachian where all the, boss, all the mob bosses came. Yeah, uh, some people actually blame Magadino for uh, getting followed there. It was never... Uh... Uh, it never came out if it was actually true or not, but uh, uh, here's a little bit about the Appalachian meeting. It was a historic summit of the American Mafia held at the home of mobster Joseph Joe the Barber, Barbera, at 625 McFall Road in Appalachian, New York on November 14, 1957. Allegedly, the meeting was held to discuss various topics including loan sharking, narcotics traffic, trafficking, and gambling, along with dividing the illegal operations controlled by recently murdered Albert Anastasia. He was the leader of a gang of killers called Murder, Inc. Murder Inc. Uh, an, an estimated uh, Murder, Inc., and then Ja Rule. That's that's where that rapper Ja Rule got a name for Murder, Inc. Hey, you got the kids these days don't remember who Jow Rule was. He doesn't. He didn't have a career after uh, Eminem F- ruined it. No, no, uh, after 50. 50 is still brutalizing him to this oh, day. Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear he had like a show in Syracuse and like 50 bought uh, all the front row? Yeah. <laughs> no, I heard that 50 had bought a show one time, 200, 200 tickets. He just bought a show and no one intended. <laughs> uh, an estimated 100 mafiosi from the United States, Italy, and Cuba are thought to have attended this meeting. Immediately after the Anastasia murder that October, and after taking control of the Luciano crime family, renamed the Genovese crime family from Frank Costello, Vito Genovese wanted to legitimize his new power by holding a national Cosa Nostra meeting. Local and state law enforcement became suspicious when numerous expensive cars bearing license plates from around the country around what was described as the Sleepy Hamlet of Appalachian. 
After setting up roadblocks, the police raided the meeting, causing many of the participants to flee into the woods in the areas surrounding the Barbera estate. More than 60 underworld bosses were detained and indicting following the raid. 20 of those who, who attended the meeting were charged with conspiring to obstruct justice by lying about the nature of the underworld meeting and found guilty in January 1959. All were fined up to $10,000 each and given prison sentences ranging from three to five years. All the convictions were overturned on appeal the following year. Wow. Um, one of the most direct and significant outcomes of the Appalachian meeting was that it helped to confirm the existence of a nationwide criminal conspiracy, a fact that some, including Federal Bureau of In- Investigation Director J. Edgar, J. Edgar Hoover, had long refused to acknowledge. That is crazy right there. Big stuff there. Yeah, I, there was uh, J. Edgar Hoover, uh, I think that... He was quoted as saying, uh, there is no mafia. No. Mafia, there is no mafia. I bet the dude got paid. Yeah, he was, he was definitely probably on the take somewhere. They are uh, real funny. I was looking up an article while you're reading about that. Uh, real funny about that day that that went down. A lot of locals claim that even months later, they were still picking $100 bills out of the leaves in the woods around the house from the gangsters fleeing from the scene. <laughs> <laughs> Guys just trying to get rid of all the cash they had on them. Pretty you know? much. Uh, yeah, they said they seen these all these mobsters running with fucking gold fucking rings on and shit, fleeting into the woods and shit. Uh, there's also that's funny. Uh, there's also a conspiracy theory. Um, subsequent investigation and research into the Appalachian Summit have raised the possibility that the event was a setup designed to destroy newly crowned boss Genovese. The primary evidence for this theory is the conspicuous absence of three prominent national crime bosses, Lucky Luciano, Frank, Costa- Frank Costello, and Meyer Lansky. Talk about heavyweights, holy shit. Um, high-ranking mafiosi, including Luciano himself and Joseph Doc Stacher, have since remarked that the meeting was sabotaged. The outcome of the meeting fell mostly in favor of Costello's and Luciano's Luciano's agenda, both of whom wanted revenge against Genovese for his recent actions. Jesus. L- Luciano and Gambino allegedly helped pay part of $100,000 to a Puerto Rican drug dealer to falsely imp- implicate Genovese in a drug deal. And on July 7th, 1958, Genovese was indicted on charges of conspiring to import and sell narcotics. So there's a lot going on there. Obviously, two warring factions fucking going at it there. Mm-hmm. Um, at a certain point, Stefano Magadino uh, kidnapped his cousin, Joe Bonanno. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's going to be awkward family reunion. Hey, bud. Remember that time? Just shut the fuck up. $500. Forget about it. Yeah, forget about it. Where's my cannoli at, boy? <laughs> Stay with them cannoli lines. Oh, fuck huh? the cannoli lines. You ever uh, had a cannoli before? I did. I actually had some today at the. They had like a Christmas party at work. Bomb ass cannolis. Those cannolis can get you in trouble too. No, only you. 
No, only you. You sick fuck. I know what you're thinking about. <laughs> you sick bastard. All right, so... Uh, are, we, are, are we going to talk about the, uh, the good killer case? Or... Yeah, we we can get into the good killers uh, after this if you want. Um, oh, you know what? Let's do that first because that's chronologically first. Yeah, because I'm. <laughs> All right, hold on. I got this. The organization known as the Good Killers Gang was comprised of immigrant mafiosi, mafiosi, of the Bonaventure. And Magadino families of Castellamare, Del Golfo, Sicily, and their allies. Fontana revealed, divided into crews of fi- about 15 men, it had been in a state of war for a decade and a half since its leader, a Brooklyn baker named Bonaventure, was brutally murdered by the rival Bocatello clan, also of Castellamare. And then I got a couple names here. I got about five names here of. The guys from the group they call the Good Killers. We got uh, Bartolo Fontana, Stefano Magadino, uh, Francesco Puma, Giuseppe Lombardi, and Vito Bonaventure. Yo, you see the picture of the one dude? His eyes like cover up. Yeah. Uh, I wonder. That, I think. I wonder what that is. I think that's Magadino. I believe. Yeah, that is Magadino. I wonder why his eyes covered up. Because I think he got probably a stab in the eye or something. I'm looking up. All right. Um, yo, yo, does it want to get into the uh, case that they were involved in with yeah. the barber? I got hmm. something here. If uh, Yeah, go ahead. All right. I was going to um, look up this thing about. So in... Uh, like you said, in August 1921, a barber named Bartolo Fontana turned himself into the New York police confessing to murdering Camilo Cayasso a couple weeks earlier in Avon, New Jersey. Fontana claimed he murdered Cayasso at the behest of the good killers, a group of mafioso who hailed from Castellamare de Golfo in retaliation, in retaliation for Cayasso's involvement in the 1916 murder of Magadino's brother. Pietro back in Sicily. Feeling he might be murdered, Fantana agreed to help police set up a sting operation. Magadina met Fantana at Grand Central Station to give Fantana $30 to flee the city. After the exchange, Magadina was arrested by a group of undercover police. Uh, Vito Bonaventure and uh, all the rest of them were subsequently arrested for their involvement in the murder. Um, Fontana revealed that the good killers were also responsible for a string of other murders. New Jersey decided not to pursue conspiracy charges in the Chiazzo murder, and the charges against Magadino were dropped despite police officers' testimony linking Magadino to the murder. Uh, and yeah, that's that's when he fled uh, Buffalo. And that's when he is known as. The Buffalo Crime Family, that's how this started. Probably started like a few months later. Actually, actually um, two years later. There was a guy named Joe DiCarlo who actually kind of had a little thing going on here. Um, he died in 1922. Hmm. 1922. Jesus, this shit is old. 
Man, that's like a hundred years ago, man. Yeah, it is a hundred years ago. So imagine this shit. Imagine nowadays if these if these good old gangsters was around now. Do you think do you, do you think half our shit, half our problem in America, will be under the table or will it be taken care of? Um. I think all the same type of crimes would would be happening, maybe just like in a different format or something. Yeah, different style. I mean, these guys were still killers and you know murderers and gamblers, but they took care of their own, and you gotta you gotta appreciate and respect that they're men of honor. They wouldn't kill children or women. Uh, you know, a, a a lot of them said they were against dealing drugs, but it seems like all these guys ended up dealing drugs anyways. You just couldn't turn the money down, yeah. you know? That money, that, they turned down the drugs back then. Just imagine if they did. We'd be in a different world. El Chapo will not be El Chapo right now. For real. So let's go to the, um, that kidnapping. It's pretty pretty crazy. Uh, do you want to tell a story about Dad real quick? Oh, yeah. I'm not sure if I remember all of it, but... The part that I do remember is Dad telling us about how we worked in so, a restaurant. Yeah, you probably have, know it a little bit better. Than so, I do. um, I just wanted to mention that uh, Magadino owned a house in Lewiston, which is where my father grew up, and uh, he also had a restaurant out there. And you you know the story from there. I've never heard the story. Yeah, well, basically, he worked at a restaurant owned by this guy as like a dishwasher. I guess my dad said he used to work. I think he said he used to work sometimes at night, and a lot of like shady characters would come in sometimes. But he kind of never really, you know, paid attention to it. Yeah. So as like, um, so as a dishwasher in a restaurant, you're like the last guy there usually, uh, staying late, clean all the dishes up. Yeah. Um, he said he would. He said that he would leave at night, and the place would be closed. And uh, he was only ever allowed to leave out the back door. He could never leave through the, uh, like, sitting room. He could only leave out the back door. He would leave, and uh, the parking lot would be filled with, like, black sedans and beautiful cars and shit, and the place is closed. So it's like something's going on there. Uh, Another uh, little tidbit about Magadino was... uh, Obviously, they called him the Undertaker because the funeral home. Um, it's rumored that uh, some bodies were disposed of in this funeral home. Oh yeah, well, that was that was like a thing in the mafia days, right? They would like they they'd put like extra like holes in the bottom of like right. caskets, right? And that's where they'd stick their bodies. Yeah, cause or when you're giving people ashes, you don't know whose ashes are in there, you know. True. If you're burning bodies in the basement. So people are sitting there thinking it's their granddaddy and it was actually some fucking killer from down the road. And uh these good killers that he was part of coming up, they were uh they were sent out all over the United States. They were known for being ruthless and uh very uh adept killers. Uh, hence the name, obviously. Um, so uh, about Joe Bonanno, the kidnapping here. You don't run a criminal enterprise for over 50 years without getting into a few scrapes, not least of which was with your own familia. Uh, so when Rizzo learned that Brooklyn mob boss Joseph Bonanno, Magadino's cousin, 
disappeared in October 1964 on the eve of testifying before a grand jury, the question naturally arose, what happened? According to Rizzo, Magadino had always suffered from a little healthy paranoia in his role as capo, but by the early 1960s it had grown to significant levels. Magadino was convicted, convinced that his cousin Joe, now a powerful boss in his own right, was working with allied families in Montreal to undermine them, or worse, serving as a spy for the police. Regardless of whether this was the case, one thing is true. Banano was scheduled to testify before a grand jury on October 21st, 1964. Excuse me. One other thing is true, too. That after having dinner with his lawyer the night before, he never showed up for his testimony. Yeah, I'm on this. Uh, I'm on this site right now, and they got a on here. They got a picture, a surveillance picture of Magadino, which is pretty badass. Yeah, I think I'm looking at the same one. Somebody, yeah. Do you notice he's got his hand over? Uh, yeah. The guy next to him's got his hand over his mouth. Yeah. They do that so the, the FBI lip readers couldn't see what they were saying. Smart. Walking talks, too, because if they were walking, you couldn't know where, uh, you know, they, they could wiretap you if you were sitting in a restaurant booth yeah. or somewhere. somewhere. But if you walked and talked, they you never really knew which block they were going to take, you know. So you know, that was the reason you know, they that, did that. They used you all the time. Like, like sometimes yeah, I do not cover my mouth. Like, what are you saying? Fuck you. What? Uh, fuck you. Oh, you do? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. That, that, you're really foiling the F- FBI agents, true. Yeah. They're <laughs> definitely <laughs> watching you. Man. The great donut burglary of uh, <laughs> 2022. <laughs> uh, so, so what happened? El Depende Amico Mio. Banano himself. So I, I don't know what that means. Someone in it. That knows Italian can tell us, I guess. Uh, Bonanno himself said that later that night, two men forced him into a taxi at gunpoint, then drove for hours deep into the countryside until they reached a farmhouse. There he was held captive by his own cousin, Magadino, and his men, released after several weeks. Another story says that that can't be true, given that the Magadinos were under FBI surveillance the whole time, and they couldn't have moved an inch without the feds knowing. A third story from Bonanno's son says this rendezvous was more of a respite, with Bonanno simply taking a little time off to enjoy the hospitality of his cousin. (laughs) and Rizzo, based on his research, Rizzo was a guy who wrote a book about this whole thing. Uh, based on his research, he came to a different conclusion altogether. Most historians, he writes, seem to agree that Bonanno staged the whole kidnapping to avoid testifying before the grand jury and appearing before the Mafia Commission and blamed his cousin. We'll never know for sure, as Bonanno died in 2002 at the ripe old age of 97, having, having outlived nearly all of... Uh, his uh, cohorts, I guess you could say. <laughs> I uh, I looked up the that thing, see what the translation was. That thing, that thing of ours, huh? That El Depende Amico Mio. Oh, what is it? It means uh, it means it depends, my friend. Nice. It's Italian for it depends, my friend. I like it. So yeah, uh, Magadino held his power for uh. A long time. 
Um, but eventually he did have a bit of a decline, and he was, uh, they say what led to his downfall um, was his own greed. It is very interesting, though, that after everything, Bonanno uh, outlived Magadino by nearly four decades, too, after everything. That is nuts. Stefano Mag- Magadino was overthrown by a rebel group consistent of basically the whole family except his actual relatives. The, the biggest incident that led to his forced retirement was his greed. As he aged, he demanded more and more money from the members, and one incident shows this. The incident, the incident I'm referring to is at a, is at a party Joseph DiCarlo, son of boss uh, Giuseppe DiCarlo, hosted. DiCarlo wanted to get not only his spirits up, but also get some money. So he hosted a party, and in the basement there was a craps game going on. When Magadino found out about it, he first demanded a 10% cut then demanded a 25% cut of it. He claimed he didn't have money, and all of his money was going to his lawyers. His, his son, uh, and then this was huge, his son Peter Magadino had his house, had his house raided. Well, uh, actually before this, he um, every year he would give uh, his lieutenants like a $50,000 Christmas bonus every year. Jesus. Yeah, and uh, this year he said he couldn't afford to do it. Because of his lawyers, right? Uh, right on time, his son Peter Magadino had his house raided, and the police found a secret compartment under his bed. Oh, when they opened it, they found three briefcases filled with just under a half a million dollars in cash. Holy, holy fuck! So, so yeah, what do, you, what do you think he put it there for? You think it was like a rainy day fund? Like if you ever wanted to just dip out? I think there? so. I think he was probably just dipping away or. Uh, putting money away slowly over over time and that was his fucking if he if he ever had to like bail out it was so like his bug end, out kid of money probably so in the end you could say that maybe Magadino wasn't so loyal to his men you could say that mm. so the other capos and soldiers saw this and were, fu- were furious that he claimed he had no money yet was caught was with with all this money they went to the commission about it but they didn't really do anything. Magadino knew it was over, but tried to put his son in as boss. The couple said no, due to his lack of experience as a leader and the fact he handled himself wrong during his arrest. Since the commission didn't do anything, Salvatore Pieri took over, along with Josefino and Joe DiCarlo. Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. Uh, interesting. That's some crazy shit. So Stefano Magadino, man, the guy who built the mafia mafia crime family into an empire. Maybe in the end wasn't so loyal after all. Guy, uh... Interesting. Lived to the ripe old age of, uh... What is it, 83? 86. 86. Damn, that's a hell of a life for a mobster, though, man. That is, you know. That's why I was surprised that that, uh, that Benino lived to ninety seven because that's like 
that rare, too. That's rare when you're in the mob thing. I, I guess you know? shit. When you got money, you can eat good and I you don't have to so. stress and worry about nothing. You're just. It's just surprised that somebody could get away and you know survive right. that long without. Oh, we didn't get up. into. Uh, oh yeah. The, oh, he cheated death multiple times. I, I don't know how we missed that. I, I was actually I got the article right here. So if you want to, yeah, read the go first ahead. One. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, article. As in the paper, this is what the article was written as. Bombing kills woman here. Blast wrecks falls home. Hold, hold on. Yeah, I was going to say, Niagara Falls residents are going to love yeah, this, yeah. this one. Blast wrecks falls home. Fatally injures woman. Daughters hurt. Mother is dead. Three daughters injured in blast. Niagara Falls, New York, May 19, 1936. Wide area rocked as terrific explosion tears one house apart and damaged two others. Woman dies in hospital. A woman was injured and burned fatally, and three of her daughters were injured in an explosion, which was uh, this, which was this morning, shortly after five o'clock, damaged three houses, almost demolishing one, and rocked the Whitney Avenue section of the city between Fifteenth and Eighteenth Street. The woman fatally injured was uh, Archangela. Longo, 42 years old, wife of Nicholas Longo, 1651 Whitney Ave. The injured daughters are Josephine, 17, Rose, 14, and Lena, 11. The two younger girls are in Mount St. Mary's Hospital. Neither is believed to be in serious condition. Firemen and police who answered calls to the neighborhood sent in by panic-stricken residents reported that evidence pointed to a bomb as the cause of explosion. The seat of the explosion was in the home was in the home of Nicholas Longo, forty three years old, sixteen fifteen or sixteen fifty one Whitney Avenue, and the blast which tore away a large front sun porch and almost completely wrecked the upper rear section of the imposing brick two and a half story dwelling, damaged the homes of Peter Pataglia at sixteen forty nine Whitney Avenue and Stephen Magadino. At 1653 Whitney Avenue. She doesn't that far from my house. Whitney. Yeah, they used to call Whitney Avenue uh, Mafia Row because of all the families that lived on there. And yeah, just so you guys, you know, might be a little confused there on why they go after Archangelo Longo, that was Magadino's sister. Yeah, it's terrible that, uh, terrible that something meant for him ended up, uh, Took the lives of a couple people, right? His sister. Yeah. Um, they woke up just before the blast, uh, and it sent Archangela and her daughters were hurled, hurled from their feet from the explosion and injured. And then, oh, but they lived. Well, the daughters lived. Miss Longo was seriously burned, and she suffered cuts and bruises. She and the two younger girls were taken to St. Mary's Hospital in a police ambulance. The mother died there at 12.20 p.m. Her daughters are said to only slightly be burned and injured and are suffering mostly from shock. Yeah, it's it's terrible. And you know what's crazy about this, too, is, like, uh, recognizing some of the last names from, you know, from families of kids I grew up with and stuff, too, you know? Yeah, that's crazy. (laughs) Um, He also... uh, In 1958, an assassin tossed a hand grenade through his kitchen window as well. That was when he lived, that was his house in Lewiston, right? Yep. Yep. 
I believe it was Dana. Is it Dana Drive? Yeah, I believe it's. I'm about to find it right now. Hold on. Yeah, I believe it's Dana Drive in Lewiston. Just scrolling down. What the fuck? Oh Sorry. yeah, Dana Drive in Lewiston, New York. Yep. Grenade tossed at Magadino home. Yep. So, uh, Magadino in the end, he uh, he died of a heart of a heart attack. It was uh, July nineteenth, nineteen seventy four. Died at Mount St. Mary's Hospital. Uh, his funeral was held at St. Joseph's Catholic Church, and he was buried at St. Joseph's Cemetery on Pine Avenue, mm-hmm. which uh, we're going to try to... I'm going to try to find that name. Chop, you going to try to find it? Hell yeah. A little haunt tomorrow, maybe? Hell yeah. You work tomorrow? Uh, if, yeah, but I we can go after work if you want. I'll go with you. What time do you get out of work at? Um, if you want, you can come pick me up at 3.30. Or if you don't want to wait, just go. I was, I was, I was just go and find it myself, and go on sixteen. I bet you it's. I bet you it's um going to be hard to miss it. It's got to be big. Oh, Look definitely. for a big, nice headstone. It okay. might even be like a mausoleum or something. No, it's just a big headstone. Oh, it's, there's a picture of it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Like, oh, who are you here for? I'm see, here to see Uncle uh, Uncle Stefan. Yeah, get some pictures of the. Uh, the funeral home too. Yo, if I get pictures of the funeral home and you see like a, a car chasing me, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, funeral home still standing to this day. Yeah, and then uh, after he died in 1970, the U.S. Attorney's General Office released a list of six uh, leading the La Cosa Nostra Commission members. Magadino's name was among them, and federal investigators said they believed the commission was the governing body. Of the mafia in this country. So yeah, after everything, after everything, then fucking Magadino dies from heart failure. And his cousin, his cousin Gaspar Magadino was killed, holy shit, April 22nd, 1970. Uh, Your birthday, bitch. Killed in New York. Okay, here here I got to confirm, too. Another crazy story. This guy, right, immigrant, comes here, builds a, a both a legitimate and illegitimate empire. Completely illiterate. Crazy. Could you believe that, man? It's crazy. Yo, uh, Macadino got his citizenship in 1926. 1926, probably, um, I wonder if, uh, well, he had to have came from, through Ellis Island at some point, right? Yeah, this one. How did it work? I wonder if, you you come through Ellis Island, you don't get, you still have to work for your citizenship, or do you get it right there? No, you gotta work for it. Yeah, you probably still gotta go through some just shit. like, ooh, Ellis Island, hey, hey, come to Ellis Island, if you want free from your stupid country, now people will come now. All right, calm down. Chop. <laughs> why the why the Ellis Island hate, bro? I know. I know I'm not hating on Ellis Island. You hate on a lot of weird things, <laughs> yeah, dude. You got like all this like Yo. weird, uh, and, like hostility. Yo, places. you should you should be here during our early episodes. I fucking can't stand Andy Dalton. What Andy we, Dalton? Yeah, there's a reason why. Yo, he was mad that Bill's Mafia donated to Andy Dalton's charity. When Are got, you kidding he me, was dude? Pissed. Dude, he went on a whole rant. He was pissed Why? About it. Oh, he's like, oh, why are you fucking helping the guy for doing his job? Doing his job. So, he's so mad. It's just the, pro, it's the point of it. 
He helped us out, man. Uh-oh. We're the guess, city of good neighbors. Guess what? What? Finally, for the first time ever, Jordan Poyer was voted to the Pro Bowl. What? What? Finally. Fucking about time, dude. So was Josh Allen and Stefan Diggs. Fucking goddamn right he was. Yo. Finally, man. Pro Bowl Poyer. Well, who uh, uh It was Stefan Diggs, Josh Allen, and Mitch Morse. I don't know. I was, I was Tra- wrong. Trey White didn't make it, huh? I was he didn't wrong. play enough. No, I was wrong about the, uh, Mac, uh, Mac Dino. 1920, 1924, after that situation of the uh, Good Killers case. Yeah. After that situation when he moved to Buffalo. In 1924, he became a, a neutral USA citizen. I don't know what the hell that means, but. Oh, okay. Oh, a natural, natural citizen, yeah. Ah, yep, yep. Just imagine how crazy that shit is. Good times, good times. Another notable thing that uh, they did, um, they had a partnership with the Cleveland Syndicate, I guess, and uh, Mo Delete's big Jewish Navy was allowed to smuggle illegal booze from Canada through through Buffalo. Mo Delete's in the big Jewish Navy... (laughs) <laughs> There's a fucking story there, I'm telling you, boys. One of the guys that was named in the uh, La Cosa Nostra uh, uh, thing, one of, his, one of those guys, his nickname was Tony Meatballs. <laughs> Talk about I super should, Italian. I show one of that name, Tony Meatballs, over here. Listen to this shit, dude. Before Prohibition ended, Magadino began peddling a non-alcoholic mixture called Home Juice. The local Italian population was compelled to purchase the concoction, which was sold door to door. The immigrants, the immigrants quickly realized the, that refusal to buy stuff could be detrimental to their health. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so it's like, oh, yeah, I know everyone's mad that we can't have alcohol, but we got this stuff that we're going to make you buy. We're going to fucking kneecap you. Jesus. Oh, man. I feel like they could not the greatest guy. I feel like they also could have come up with a better name than Home Juice. Like, there wasn't any other names out there. Can you just imagine like the, him pitching the idea for that to his boys? <laughs> Do you know uh, uh, Macadina was is an unseen character in the third season of Bull Rocker Empire? Really? Yeah. Fire. Yeah, I never watched Fire. That. Dude, that's a great show. Dude, With Steve Buscemi? Dude, Steve Buscemi, I think he's one of my favorite creepy, weird actors. Oh, yeah, speaking of uh, <laughs> speaking of shows like that, you guys want a good, decent little uh, mafia show. It's not like, ma- it's like more of like a modern mafia show, but it's pretty good. It's called uh, Tulsa King. It's on Paramount Plus. It's got Sylvester Stallone in it. Oh, it's his that? first nice. time ever playing a mobster, ever. Wait, Sylvester always played a mobster. No, no, it's his first time actually playing a mobster. Oh no, man! I'm thinking, uh, I'm thinking, what's his name? El El Pacino. That's probably fire. It's a pretty good show, actually. What's the first on? couple episodes are kind of slow, but it gets good. It's on Paramount Plus. It's pretty good. Yeah, I watch I, it. A you lot. know what I like? It's made from the same guy that makes Yellowstone. The uh, they remember they started doing that Fargo show about the Kansas City mob based on the movie. Yeah. They did like one season of it, and then they fucking stopped. You know why? Because someone got quacked in the uh, production. Hey, don't say shit about that shit. No, there was a movie too. There was a movie that went along with the show. Yeah, that's what I said. Yeah, that's I think there's I another Fargo. show. I think there's like another season coming or something Is at it? some point. Good, because that shit, was, was, fu- that shit was fucking pretty cool. It was pretty cool. 
So, any you guys got anything else? Or? Nah, I just got. I want to go home and freeze to death <laughs> in my cold ass trailer. Nah. Um. Yeah. Next week's episode. It's gonna get deep. Make sure you bring your tissues. Gonna get deep. <laughs> gonna get deep in uh, how McDonald ran the city of Niagara Falls. I'm bringing back, bringing back a segment from the early days of the pod for one time only. Sean's rants, and it's gonna be a good one. I'm about to go off. I got a whole message <laughs> in my head. And then uh, after that, we'll start the new year. New year, same losers. I like that one. New year, same losers. <laughs> and we're gonna hopefully. If we can, we're going to start off the new year with something real spicy. Yeah, we got a couple of good episodes coming that, that first month. But if not, then I don't know. I'll figure something out to do. I kind of want to do a deep dive into like, you know, like take an actor and do a deep dive on him. Like maybe like somebody like John Candy or something. Or Chris Farley. Yeah, it could be cool. We already did Chris Farley. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'd like to do one on John Candy, man. He's the bad. He's the man. Or OG, we talk about... Sure. uh you know, we should talk about. We should just dive deep in uh, some of the conspiracies around these celebrity deaths. How they also might have been be tied good. to them trying to out the Hollywood sex trafficking ring. Yeah, because remember, Chris Cornell yeah. was working on a documentary before he died. Yeah, about w- it. with Chester, and with Chester Bennington involved. Yeah, and there was also uh, red handkerchiefs put on the doors of both mm. crime scenes. Pretty strange. Same thing happened with uh, Corey Haim. Corey Haim tried coming out about the sexual abuse he suffered in Hollywood, and he got blacklisted for it. There was also a guy named Isaac Cappy who was making some accusations about Tom Hanks. No, not the world's grandfather. Yeah, ended up throwing himself off of a highway Mm. into traffic. Nothing to see here. Move along. Nothing to see there. Yeah, well, you know, that's just a little taste of some stuff we're going to get into next year. We got Choop here now, so you know. Now you know we got... It made me and Chop want to step it up even more, so now we're going to start putting out quality content instead of messy shit like we did before. I like our messy shit. Yeah, but it's better this way. But yeah, I don't want to tease too much, but... You know. Back to... So yeah, just... Well, yeah. That was uh, Stefano Magadino, guys. Thanks for riding along with us. We appreciate you. Yeah, man. I've, I've been Caden Four Fingers Emilio. A.K.A. <laughs> Cheetah. I forgot what mine was. Uh, Bullet Tooth. Bullet Tooth Bonacci, and we're out of here, boys, huh? And giant tight lips. Hey, hey keeps... I got these watches. Huh? Hey, you ain't seen nothing. You're sleeping with the fishes. Forget about it. Forget yeah, about yeah, it. Forget about it, huh? Lead the gun, take the cannoli. <laughs> Later. All right, guys. Uh-huh.